millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good lad. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Been shot, take the title, take it all, and go to jail tomorrow. This chump has got everybody scared. Scared of what? You told him I don't have nothing but a prayer. Well, chump, all I need is a prayer, because if that prayer reached the right man, not only will George Fulman fall, but mountains will fall. Oh, my God, he's won the title back at 32. Mr. Rasham Boxer, it's something to see, and the heavyweight championship is his destiny. You saw him on television, there was no one more beautiful. You saw him walking down the street, he was a beautiful thing to see. He moved around the ring, he had style and class, he was tall and good looking. Everything you'd want from a boxer, wrestler, football player. And to be honest with you, he belonged to the arts because he had poem, poetry, he had it all. Specimen, fighting machine. You know, he was handsome, he was articulate, he was funny, charismatic, and was whooping ass too. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. It's our celebration of the life of Muhammad Ali. And for such a momentous show, I figured it was only fair to boot Murph and Ken out and draft in our boxing experts. So in studio with me, second captain's producer, Muhammad Ali, super fan Mark Organ. Yes, Mark. we got a chance, Andy. And the Andy in question, <laughs> I think you might guess, is former middleweight champion of the world, Andy Lee. Andy, how are you? Good, on. Thanks uh, for having Great me. to have you. Not at all. Yeah, I'd like to claim credit for those incredible audio montage uh, montages, Mark, but now that you're on air with me, I think the jig is up. Some incredible stuff there on Ali, and it's just funny, over the last few days, it's 
I mean, even what's there is a drop in the ocean of mm. the ridiculous legacy he's left uh, and not just him, but people talking about him over the last few days. Before that though, Andy, oh, yeah. 12 years, 12 years I've been working with Owen McDevitt. This is the first time I've been on air in a studio with It's him. exciting. Oh, you're you're so witnessing something important. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Really witnessing something important. Do you reckon if Andy does a good enough job, is it too soon to the Euros to kick Murph off? Well, no, I think I think you know yeah, Ken has an excuse. He's traveling to the Euros. Yeah. Murph is is um, enjoying his bank holiday, I'm sure. We'll just keep, but when he keep hears this show, yeah, yeah, what's your knowledge? Mind, what's though. your knowledge of uh, Ireland's groupie opponents, Andy? <laughs> 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 uh, Bernard Dunn, Cordoba. We were on air the same night that night. Oh yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I was just thinking if people once they're finished listening to this podcast, they can go on YouTube because if you look at the footage of that fight in the post uh, <laughs> yeah. in the post fight interview it's Marty Marcy interviewing Bernard isn't it this, that's right this yeah. really emotional scene yeah. and then in the background uh, with a radio mic trying to get the mic in in front of Bernard's face and the camera's trying to move him out of shot the whole time is Owen McDevitt yeah. in 2009 well I, well, I just run You're down on that shot for at least 90 seconds funny you mention that I just run down from interviewing Andy Lee backstage you've been we were, fighting that yeah. night hadn't you yeah we were kind of watching it on the ramp weren't we yeah yeah and uh then it was all of a sudden it was an amazing fight taking place. Yeah. Like when it looked like all hope was lost, and then all of a sudden, you were, yeah, you were giving some back. some very detailed tactical and technical analysis. And then yeah. I saw there was a knockout about to happen, so yeah. I suddenly run away from <laughs> you. Apologies for that, Andy. Now that we've uh, we've got that out of the way, but so much great stuff there. Yeah, but on the intro music as well, it's it's kind of funny because it, it sounded almost melancholic there. A lot yeah. of the clips, and it, it's not meant to be because I think when somebody like Ali dies and what he gave to the world and the gifts he gave to the world and the positive message that he put out and how he empowered people, that it's should always be a celebration of his life and oh, a celebration yeah, yeah. of what he did. Yeah. But I was struck, it was kind of funny, and I, I, he's been, you know, the, the amazing communicator that he always was, and that made him famous, aside from his sporting abilities, that we all loved. Um, and he hasn't been that person for so many years. But still on Saturday morning when I woke up, I was really sad when I found out the news. Mm. And I was watching the footage on, you know, the, the BBC did a, a great job, their role in news coverage. And I was really sad um, watching you know, all the old footage of him, um, you know, basically all his old appearances mm. on Parkinson and all the rest. And <laughs> I kind of find that remarkable. And I, I, I'm, I think the, the reason for that um, in my own mind was that there's never been anyone like him before, uh, before him and since. And for somebody to have so many attributes that he had, you know, his, his, just even his, his ability to entertain, his comic timing, his facial expressions, how brilliant he was in all those mm. chat shows. And then aside from that, his social conscience, you, you know, how he empowered people, basically how his, his influence at a, one of the most difficult times in, in history on the, on the civil rights movement and, um, and all the rest, how poetic he was, not just in the silly little poems, but in, you know, his, his uh, impossible is nothing um, speech and stuff like that are really beautiful, eloquent, intelligent, powerful uh, pieces and then aside from that he was unbelievable boxer in my opinion the greatest boxer of all time uh, and incredibly handsome unbelievably <laughs> yeah. beautiful looking man as George Foreman described him as just how can one human being have so many attributes yeah. and how can there be somebody like that to come along again it's funny you mentioned the the silly little poems mm. uh, which are, obviously they were highly entertaining and you see a lot of them collated in, in certain articles you know, so here are all the, the, the quotes and the poems and all these, all these little bits and bobs from Ali. But reading the Sunday Times did like a sixteen-page put out yesterday, and there's a lot of Hugh McIlvanny in there. There's a lot of great stuff that he writes a sort of overarching piece about Ali and his legacy. But there's also uh, a lot of old articles reprinted, uh, reports on certain fights. And for example, the, the theme that I noticed from it was how 
honest Ali was and how real he seemed to be post-fight. You know, the poems and all that is yeah. all part of the promotion. But post-fight, he was really... There's amazing stuff, for example, after the, the fight in uh, The Rumble in the Jungle. Mm. It's just... And these are the days when it was literally just McIlvaney and one other journalist are in Ali's villa for like two hours in, on, on the morning after the fight. And they were talking to him. They were saying, OK, we understand that you thought of this tactic and you decided you were going to use this rope at all as it came to be called. But how do you keep your nerve? How do you keep your nerve when there's a big animal uh, in the ring with you, ready to take your head off? And he says, he explained it like this. He said, an experienced pilot flies a plane through a storm without getting in a panic. If new things happen, he's cool. I've been boxing 20 years. I'm a pretty good fighter. I can walk into the firing line with a man like Foreman and I've got no fear. Nothing can happen that I don't understand. I was a pro nine years before he was. I've been to school. When he got knocked down, it was new to him and he was lost. I've been down. I've had my title taken away, had my jaw broke. And he goes on to explain mm. this is the learning that he has had in the ring. But I was just quite struck that I, I actually, in the last few days, have found those kind of quotes more interesting than the poems, which we've a lot of us have heard quite a few times. Yeah, like a similar moment after the Thriller in Manila, you know, him and Frazier had this great rivalry and, and he really gave Frazier a hard time with the taunting and the, the jives and stuff like that. And I think it did hurt, uh, you know, there was a bit of spitefulness and it hurt Joe Frazier. But... After the fight, you can just there's there's an interview online when you can just see that uh, and Ali just he's a great fighter, mm. he's a tough fighter. You could just see the respect that was there. And that I think that was there all the time. It was just whatever party had to do to promote the fights and be the character and you know play mind games. Um, but like I said, in the post fights, that's where you see the honesty and the real and the realness. We'll get back into this, but I do have to let people know just in case you've missed the blurb or you've arrived almost blind <laughs> into this podcast. We've got a hell of a lineup for you. Jerry Eisenberg is a voice here familiar with if you've listened to us over the years. A big friend of Ali, a huge figure in that era of sports writing in the US, and one of the few journalists who seemed to really, from the start, defend Ali in the years of his exile from the ring. Now the twist on this one is that I had the chat face-to-face with Eisenberg in his home near Las Vegas. Visited him last year, interviewed him, uh, put out some of it in the annual late last year. But we also had a great chat about Ali, some really great personal stories there that I'm fairly sure you won't have heard before. I certainly hadn't heard them before. Uh, Sounds Glamour's going to Vegas now. Henderson, Nevada is about half an hour away. I would say very much a quieter spot than Vegas itself. It's it's not a, There's not much glitz and glamour to it, but it's a, a lovely house that he has up there that we... I uh, spent a couple of hours in. It was really great stuff. So hopefully that will I'm going to say, oh, this well. is possibly the best piece we've done on the podcast. I'm allowed to say that. I very seldom on air. It's brilliant. brilliant. Saying in advance, though, yeah. that you're raising people's hopes and then they might... Oh, anyway, we'll see how it goes. And one of the leading figures in the civil rights movement in the US, a man who twice ran for president in the US, uh, the US ran for the Democratic nomination, the Reverend Jesse Jackson. Oh, we haven't got a presidential candidate. We haven't had one for a while, we? no. Well, Trump's on his way over <laughs> soon, so we'll see what happens. But uh, yeah, he's been a close friend of Ali's over the years, spent time with him during those, during those that exile. And, you know, even after that, he was in Ali's dressing room pre-fight. What was the comeback fight? Jerry Quarry, I think mm. it was, uh, in Atlanta. When he came back from that, he's continued to see him over the years. And he's the Reverend Jesse Jackson <laughs> as well. Yeah. So that's enough of a pre-sale on that one. But what sort of... Uh, a figure was Muhammad Ali when you were growing up. Obviously, you know, like the rest of us, you were too young to have seen him fight. Mm. But was he still a presence for you? Of course, and I, I, I think anybody who's anybody's picked up a pair of gloves uh, refers to Muhammad Ali. I think, like for me as a kid, he was, seemed to always be on TV. There was always videotapes of all these fights in in our house, and we'd always seemed to be always on TV. And and as well, you know, the rhymes and the flash and. and and the speed and how he fought, and how beautiful he was, and how, like and what what's been said about him, how poetic he was in, in the ring. He was an artist, you know, and uh, 
yeah, just an immense figure culturally in the world and like in my life. Just to watch him, you know, he's all, like he's the, he is the greatest. Yeah, he was the biggest sporting hero in our house, and we really? played all sports. But mm. he absolutely was. And dad, my dad's a um, was a boxer and a boxing trainer. And when I was about six years of age, he gave myself and my brother this boxing book called <laughs> The All-Time Rates of Boxing, which is like almost like a picture book with profiles yeah, and stuff like yeah. that, you know. And so we, we'd be we'd read that almost every night. You know, mm. we, we constantly read and you'd be reading about, you know, Sugar Ray Robinson or Gene Tunney and all these top, um, you know, the all-time greats. Mm. But dad would always refer to how this guy was the best <laughs> and he was dad's favorite. So he became our favorite soon <laughs> yeah. after that. And we'd yeah. never, we, I'm trying to think of maybe the odd videotape where there'd be some footage, but... It would be seldom, or there might be something that would come up the odd time in the BBC, um, but it would be very seldom that you'd actually see footage of his fights. Yeah. But it would just be from the, the story that we read of him and, and the, like you're saying, the, the anecdotes around his fights yeah. that, uh, that made him popular in our house. But that's it, and he has remained popular to fighters like yourself, Andy, mm. who were way too young to understand, to have seen him actually fight in his prime, or indeed at all. And that's very different, I think, to any other sports person in almost any other sport. You don't hear of too many people who grew up in the 80s or 90s talking about Pele being their all-time hero. Yeah. In fact, nobody, unless maybe they're Brazilian. Whereas with Ali, with Ali, it does seem to be the case. I've seen interviews with, with boxers in the stadium and there, there might be little profile pieces <laughs> in the who's your favourite boxer? And these lads are like 17, 16, <laughs> yeah. 17. That's Muhammad Ali. Yeah. And that doesn't happen in any other sphere. As far as I'm aware, like you can, you're not, nobody's going to say Bobby Charlton, you know, no, no young lad today playing football is going to say Bobby Charlton yeah. is, you know, he's my hero or don't think they're going to say, I don't think they're going to say Paddy O'Shea. I don't think they're going to do that or Christy Ring. No, they're yeah. not even going to say Mar- Maradona. It's obviously yeah. Messi, but Ali mm. seems to retain that aura. Yeah, well, that's, well like it's hard to, to sum the man up in words, you know, mm. nothing is an over, over, you know, an overstatement with him because there's certain people in life, right, in, in the history of the world who are t- like for want of a better word they're touched by God you know they're special you know um, Muhammad Ali maybe Elvis Presley you know Bob Dylan maybe and I'm maybe sure Bowie. yeah and like they're just I, I like you said you know obviously this year there's been a lot of high profile deaths of people who you wouldn't you know um, who you would have grew up watching or listening to or whatever um, but this one really did like I, I think I tweeted it like this one hurts you know this this, 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 this and I don't know, I'm sure if other people have felt that maybe about David Bowie or, you know, Prince, but, you know, Muhammad Ali is, is, is the biggest of all time to me. That's a great point about there being no such thing as an overstatement almost with Ali. Nothing disappoints. And when you go back and watch some, I watched When We Were Kings again last night. Yeah, so did I. Watch it, did you? Yeah, yeah. And I, was, I don't know what you thought, but I, I, I did see it about probably about two or three years ago. It might have been the last time. I've watched it quite a, quite a few times, <laughs> I will say. And I, I, mean, I was sho- actually shocked at how good it was again yeah, and how brilliant. amazing Ali is in it. And I subsequently read George Foreman apparently watched that in later years. You know, so Foreman obviously has talked himself about the type of personality he used to have and how he um, mm. sort of uh, had a complete conversion, I think possibly in the dressing room after that fight. Maybe it was another fight, but anyway, he, he changed his entire personality and his entire lifestyle in later years. But he still had a certain bitterness uh, about Ali and about losing that fight. It was still a, a big bit of baggage for him until he sat down many years later with his kids and watched When We Were Kings. And he said that Ali was so funny and his kids were laughing so much mm. that he was, he was thinking, God, yeah, I remember I used to idolise Ali because Foreman would have been a bit younger, I assume. But I, I used to think that this guy, I, he, he basically Foreman remembered how great Ali was as a person and how charismatic he was and f- left all his baggage behind after that point. I was watching when we were kids last night and thinking, I can see why that would have been the case because mm. I was, I, 
laughed out loud on a number of occasions at how brilliant Ali was. Yeah, yeah we heard Foreman at the start of the show there yeah. in, the, in the intro music, uh, intro clip, but he also, his quote, which I think is brilliant, he said, uh, he made you love him. If you disliked him, you wanted more than anything to see him again so you could dislike him again. <laughs> yeah, That's yeah, exactly yeah. it. He, yeah. just, he had that appeal to draw everybody in. Have you ever met him? I have actually um, had the pleasure of meeting him. It would have been early 2011. They reopened the gym, which he used to box out of in Miami, the Fifth Street Gym. Mm. And um, I had the pleasure to go down. I got invited down to go down, myself and Emmanuel. And um, he, one of his daughters is married to an Irish-American lawyer named Mike Joyce, who who I know through boxing. He's involved in boxing. And um, we went to the gym to open. There was a lot of characters. There a lot of people there. Muhammad, Muhammad Ali turned up. And, and then I... Well, it was all over. I got a text that evening saying, um, come on up to the hotel room, you know, you can meet Mohammed. <laughs> I jumped in the first taxi I saw and and spun up there. And uh, it really was like, it was pretty amazing. Now, he wasn't in the best of shape at the time. Is um, it kind of sad seeing him like that? It, it was, it was, it was a strange, it was strange. Um, I walked into the, they had kind of like a suite in the hotel and uh, he was just sitting on the couch and... Uh, I couldn't. I didn't really want to look at it. You know, I was talking to his wife, and uh, I think it's her sister who kind of looked after looked after him. And um, I, he was in my periphery, and I just I couldn't actually bring myself to turn and look at him. You know, I was just really? so excited. I don't know what it was like. And they were like, they could, they must have, they must have seen it before with other people or whatever it was. They were like, come on over, come on, I'll bring you over and mm-hmm. you can meet him. And um, like, it, you know, I was just. It was just a thrill, like, you know, you meet certain people in your life that you have, like, there would have been no one I would have wanted to meet more than Muhammad Ali. Well, let's get into this chat with Jerry Eisenberg. He lives in a place called Henderson in Nevada, as I mentioned, a quiet town in the hills above Las Vegas. So I called him to his home to finally meet Jerry face-to-face after about 10 years of telephone interviews. And before we sat down to chat about Ali, Jerry was good enough to give me a tour of the house, which was absolutely stocked full of memorabilia and photos on the wall, plenty of them featuring the greatest... It's your father. Yeah. Okay. Presenting me again, Eddie Robinson, black coach who won more more games than any coach in history at one point. And I was the first white guy on the Grambling University campus. Fraser and Ali and another incarnation when they were both young and I guess I was too. <laughs> That's, uh, I'm, I'm, I got my left hand on Ali's jaw in, in my living room. I'm teaching him a lesson. He got a little out of line. <laughs> so it's uh, a so, short left hook. But yeah, that's yeah. Ali and me, he's looking at my grandchild in a wallet there. We're in the back seat, in the back seat of a of a limo. Of a limo. And ahead of us is a police car with, with the light going because they picked him up at the airport. And he said, these folks know I'm not fighting anymore. They're a cop. And I said, you know, I'm going to have a bedlam busting out here. I'm afraid I don't have a mark on my face. Yeah. And I'm upset, son, and listen. And I just turned 22 years old. I must be the greatest. Right. I told the world. The great man who you befriended is Muhammad Ali. Um, he wouldn't say it that way. but He, he, he might not call you a great friend. You're right. No, no. He wouldn't say I'm a great man. Well, he might say that, but he wouldn't say I befriended him. It's the other way around. The other way around. Well, he says that, uh, and I am interested in you, the relationship you've had with him over the years. You say, when I reach back in my memory to define Ali, my fondest memories are of the quiet times in his Deer Lake, Pennsylvania training camp. You're one of the few people who could tell us what Ali 
was actually like in those quiet times when we're not seeing the brass showman that we all see? Well, you know, Ali was two people. Listen, I'm nine people, so. <laughs> but the but the young Ali, he was an amazing guy. There are stories. Um, before we get to the quiet times, there's some stories about him that need to be known. Nobody that I know feels for young people and old people the way Joe, the way uh, uh, Muhammad did. Unbelievable guy. There was a guy. You want me to tell these anecdotes? Yeah, oh, well, absolutely. One day there was a guy, there was a guy named Big John. All tall Johns are called Big John anyway. This guy, if you in a previous incantation had a different job, if you took lemon juice and got the invisible ink off his forehead, it would say CIA on it. He was the guy in charge of security for the Pope's first visit to Yankee Stadium. Now he's hired by Madison Square Garden. You're going to be Ali's bodyguard while you finish his training for Norton up at Grocery's or Concord. Mm-hmm. It's in the Catskills Resort. And he says, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do that. He's a freaking dra- draft dodger. You know, he, and this guy's got the American flag in his lapel. And, and the guy says, you'll do it or you won't work here anymore. He's really steaming. Ali comes in and Ali's yes, no. I mean, you know, John is yes, no, whatever. So up we all go to the Concord. Now they think they're doing them a favor. They have a golf course and they have a little, looks like a motel on the edge of the course, they call it golf house. He's going to be in there and nobody else, so he won't be disturbed. He wants to be where everybody is, you know. So he starts to work, first of all, he starts to work on Big John, he said. He calls him Mr. Police. Mr. Police, have you got kids? Are you married? He said, yeah, I'm married. Got kids? What do you care? I want to know, if you got kids? He said, yeah, I got two kids. How old are they? He tells him. He said, okay, listen, you're going to be with me day and night for quite a while. I, I would like you to bring your children up this weekend and let them have the, you and your wife, have the, all of you have the use of the facilities and you stay with them for the weekend. He said, I can't do that because uh, because uh, I got to be where said, I'll stay in my room. I'll take my meals. It's what Ali did. And boy, Big John would have taken a bullet for him on by Monday, right? Okay? Yeah. So now... Every night it's the same thing. Mr. Police, I want to go to the big house. The big house is the hotel. And, and look, Mohammed, we've been over this before. Um, you like Western, we're going to get, we're going to get, we're going to rent John Wayne, you know, with the shooting and the Cowboys. I want to go to the big house. Listen, we can't go up there. I got you. I'm responsible for your, for your safety. Too many people milling around. We're not going to say, okay, I don't go to the big house. I don't fight. So John looks over and he's, he's serious. Okay, we'll go, all right, we'll get, now he's got him talking like him. Now we'll go to the big house, John says, but half an hour, you don't get more than five feet away from me or we'll leave it. Okay, so now go to the big house. He walks in and it's the strangest sight you've ever seen. You know, when you go to, you, I guess if you see, uh, I'm sure there's a symphony orchestra, um, in Dublin, mm-hmm. and I'm sure you've been there, and you hear when a, when a guy conducts a brilliant symphony, although I don't know what that means, waving your hands, you hear this tap, 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 they're tapping the bows on the, uh, I hear this tap, 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 as I, I look, it's the walkers and the canes of the old people who are sitting in the lobby in a semicircle. The old daughters of Miriam, I think the youngest person in the room is probably 80, they're having this convention, you know, and they talk, well, how 
gets up, walks over. I will now perform magic, and I'm saying, "Oh Christ, the worst musician, the worst magician I've ever seen in my life." And now he gets it. But while this is going on, he, someone is tugging on his left arm, and he won't look down. He said, "I'm, I'm, I'm doing magic. I will now levitate." And I'm saying, "Oh God!" Yeah, he goes up on his toes. He gets down. He levitates. And as he says that, he finally looks down, and the incredible shrinking woman has a hold of his arm. She must have, I don't know what she was at one time, but she's about 3'7 now, 3'7. And she looks at me and says, you know, Muhammad, you're not a bad guy after all, and good looking too. Picks her up, walks to a couch, sits down, puts her on his lap. Come here, come here, come here. Now they all make a semicircle around. Now he says, I got to fight Ken Norton. He might have said, I'm going to swim through the Bermuda Triangle. They don't know what the hell he's talking about. <laughs> Ken Norton. Look at this face. Is this a beautiful face? Well, yeah. Okay. Ken Norton says, my own mama is not going to recognize. Oh, oh, oh. Should I fight him? No, no, don't fight him. What about pride? What about the old school? What about pride? Well, you got to have some pride. Yes, yes, yes. So they're going back and forth. He said, that's why I came up here. I'm training old school. I'm chopping down trees. You know I dropped that, chopped down 27 trees yesterday. And I'm getting myself in condition for this big, big fight. And he said, and I came up here because all the foxes, you know what foxes are, all the foxes are chasing me around Manhattan, and I can't have that. I got to train in solitariness. So, so uh, I do that. And what's the first thing I, I happens? I meet Miss Sadie here. God, I'm lost. Miss Sadie, give me a kiss. Well, tap, 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 they went berserk. And Big John said, I think that's enough, Muhammad. And then we go back. But I mean, that's, and none of this stuff was ever recorded because he doesn't do things. I'll tell you how he is. There are a few guys who would have done it, but not the way he did it. I had just become a, a, a single father. My kids had just come to live with me. There was some nervousness. Their mother had told them about all these satanic rituals that I practiced and everything else. And, and so, you know, they, they were scared a little bit. Well, I was doing a show that's on the wall there, the last fight, which Foreman and Ali in the jungle and I was doing it in the alley part of the show in Deer Lake. So we're driving to Deer Lake, and my daughter says to me, my daughter is seven at the time, and she said to me, I hope, she, she, you know, she said Muhammad, I hope Muhammad gets his block knocked off. I said, why would you say something like that? I said, do you understand? This is a business. Both of these gentlemen are my friends. I don't care who wins. That's not what my, uh, what my job is. And you should realize and appreciate their abilities. And she said, well, you always said he brags too much. You always said don't brag. I said, you're seven years old. What do you got to brag about? So I said, Robert, I know you're interested in television, which you was for a while. I talked to my crew. You can go with them and carry stuff and whatever. They she said, she says, well, what am I going to do? I said, well, you go to the kitchen and you speak to Ann Coretta. Tell her you are now the official water girl for the Jerry Eisenberg television crew. <laughs> Get her to give you some bottles of water. You carry them around for whoever needs water. But you keep your mouth shut. I was afraid of what you were going to say. Now it's over. And he's really performed masterfully in the dressing room. He is just superb. And now he says, and we're talking very softly, and he says to me, that's your son over there? Because Robert's helping him pack up. And I said, yeah. He said, they're living you now, aren't they? I said, yeah. He said, what's his name? Because he never met him. I said, it's Robert. He said, wait a minute. Gets up, puts his arm around Robert. He says, Robert, he said, you know, you've gone to live with a great man. You listen to him. 
he will be a great influence in your life. I could have kissed him. I mean, it was a one, you know, he, he comes back. Now, he's looking for my daughter. Well, she sees us talking very softly. She's seven. So what does she think? I'm ratting around about what she said in the car, right? She's pulling her molecules into the wall as close as she can get them. And he says, little girl, come up here, little girl. Little girl, come up here. She's pulling back. She says, little girl, I'm talking to you. You with the braids. Come down here right now. And he puts his index finger, points at the wall. He's walking very slowly. Well, he was a big guy, 6'3", so, and she was at that, she must have been like four foot five. He swoops down and picks her up, and he's holding her over his head. She has now lost any knowledge she has of the English language. Is that your daddy? Don't you lie to me, little girl. Is that your daddy? I told you not to lie. That man can't be your daddy. Look at him. He's ugly. He's an ugly man. You're beautiful. The gypsies brung you. Come, give me a kiss. We're driving home. Oh, boy, I hope he can win. I said, you're like all the others. The only difference is the age. But he took that time with those kids, because they were my kids. And uh, he, he, was, he was quite a guy, really. You, the, I mentioned the training camps there. You, you had this sort of access, which is just yeah. extraordinary. He would tell me things, you know, about, about his life and how he felt about people and Another thing, it was always a circus around him. Always a circus. We're in Landover, Maryland, and there's these huge speakers. And they, they were like five feet tall, maybe six feet tall. And he's sitting between them talking to me. And the guy runs in, I got the tape, I got the tape. And it's the guy who did the musical score for The Greatest. And the music was the only thing that I felt was legitimate in the whole movie. And the chant, Ali Booming. So that's booming. The guy's dancing to show how much he loves this thing. Ali's trying to talk to me about the fight that he had with Jimmy Young and I. And it's like a zoo. People are coming and going. And the phone's ringing. Yeah, he's telling me he's got tickets. And he goes, it's, I, I mean, I've never been to him like that. You, you could, that's why those solitary moments I really prized with him. Because he, he was never alone. He was never alone. In the middle of all this, he said, you know, I fought Jimmy Young here. I said, yeah, I know you did. He said, I bet you thought I was going to lose that fight. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, because your referee was so horrible. Then he said something, which I do not believe for one nanosecond, but I do believe that he said it because it made me, for me. He said, you know, I remember the time you once told me, you never worried about me in a fight because you knew I'd always find a way to win. And I thought about that, and I said, i got to find a way. And I said, well, thank you. Well, I'm into my mind. I said, what bullshit that is. But he tried, he, yeah, he, he, it's hard for me to explain that it was a strange bond we had because we only had one fight in all the years I've known him and we stopped talking for about two months and then they did that benefit concert for Reuben Hurricane Carter I'm not saying he was guilty, guilty or innocent but I'd like to know where he was the night the Titanic went down and it's a benefit concert, and the lights go out, and everybody's lighting up weed. I said, my God, I can't even send these clothes to the cleaner. I have a contact eye. And Kilroy came upstairs and found me in the mezzanine of Madison Square Garden. And said, why don't you come downstairs? I said, well, why didn't he come up here? He said, come downstairs, please. He said, he really wants to talk to you. He said, why do you think I'm here? He sent me. I said, well, all right. I got down here. Never apologized. And I wasn't going to apologize. I'll tell you what it was about. I mean, but never, but said to me, wow, where you been? It's so good to see you. It was like we never had an argument, so I let it, I let it ride away. 
we had an argument about about um, about um, it, it was in Manila, and in Manila he had I don't know sometimes sometimes I used to think he was possessed. He took what's your name? Uh, oh yeah, he took a, a girlfriend. Over yeah, uh, he took her. I'm trying to remember her name. Oh, wait a minute now. Anyway, he she was Veronica. Took Veronica there, and he told Belinda, who is Kalila, he said, "Can't come. It's a square business. I can't be distracted." And he's got her with him. And we go. He says, "Me, you want to go to a party?" Oh, sure. He, it's got to be better than the last one. He took me to a party where, where uh, in in uh, Malaysia, where the Prime Minister of Sabah, which is part of Malaysia, was talking about the wonderful conversions. We just tell these people if they don't convert to Islam, we're going to kill them. And I'm sitting there, and I got an open shirt, and this thing is hanging out, which is a thigh. And I said, uh, gee, it's chilly in here. And I started to close my shirt and whatever. I said, he owed me one after that. So now he's in uh, Manila, and she went to come to party. It's at Marco's house, his house, the friggin' palace. So we go there. Uh, he also took me to see Mabuto in, in Zaire. But anyway, we go there. And now we're... Uh, you know, Elmelda Marcus was Miss Universe, beautiful woman, and and Veronica was a beautiful girl, and um, they take obviously someone's going to take a picture of the AP two beautiful women and their husbands, and Ali they ask Ali for her name to fill in the captions. He tells her it's it's Belinda, he tells the photographer it's Belinda. Belinda, she, well, you don't think this photograph is going to appear around the world? Belinda sees it and reads the caption in Chicago. She goes off the wall. And she flies out there, and and that's when she karateed a table in his suite, and, and then checked out five minutes after she checked in. And uh, uh, but but he would do things. I don't know why that the fight was over that. Is that that fondness and that respect you have for him? Is that why you ultimately stuck up for him when he was stripped of his titles after refusing to go to Vietnam? Was it because he was a friend of yours? No. I would have done it if it was my brother-in-law who I hated. When I was a little kid, he always got a double story from me, and I can't help it. I mean, when you get old, you talk. I was a young kid. Most kids would try to hear the ball game at night, you know, hide their radios. I listened to something called Town Meeting of the Air. There were debates. Very famous people. Alvin Barkley was, later became a candidate to be, well, he was vice president at one point in the United States. But he was a senator from Kentucky at that time. And the subject was the Constitution. And I'm going to quote it directly because this is how I feel about Ali, and I wrote it. The Constitution of the United States is a living document. It is not a dead document. If it were a dead document, we'd put it on a shelf and let it gather dust somewhere else and write a new one. But it's alive, and it's it's the code that we live by. And I wrote a column, that's what started my real trouble. The first column I wrote, I wrote a million of them, but that one was called uh, With Liberty and Justice. Because that's the phrase, liberty and justice for all. And um, I explained there, I'm doing this because I believe in the Constitution. I, I said, he is a friend of mine. I, that uh, this makes no bones about that, everybody knows it. But I would do it for the brother-in-law who I don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, because this is still supposed to be America. And then it all started. 
we got thousands of letters because I was syndicated in all of our papers. And we got thousands of letters. And I didn't, they, I, you know, I, my rule is if you got a letter from me, tear it up, don't send it to me. I don't want to read it. But they began sending boxes of these letters. And um, I think one of them, when I shifted through them, I think one of them might have agreed with me. And I think the guy wrote something like, I'm sorry for writing this in crayon, but I'm in an institution where they won't give me a sharp pointed pencil. We got, the, our building kept getting evacuated for bomb threats. We got ticking alarm clocks in the mail. We got feces in the mail. I hope it's dog feces. Uh, the, and the postal authorities are in there. But to me, everybody hated me. Ali never held, held any bitterness. He was amazing to me. I mean, I, I got a temper. I suppose she has one too, but I only see what happened. Well, it's another story I'm not going to tell. But basically, he, he, he was a very even-tempered, mild-going guy who, who did, the, in the end, he would trust him. He would do the right thing in the end. You talked about the fondness you have for him and you always thinking he'll find a way. By the time you fought Larry Holmes, I think you weren't the only one who felt that his career should be finished by then. There was nothing left to prove. I realize... The legend that this man has been. I would hope they would stop this fight. Savage. This fight should be stopped. Angelo is telling the referee to stop it. Bundini is arguing with him. Check him out. What do you want to do? Come on, James. I'm the chief second. All right. I stopped the fight. He would not. He would not give in, Angelo Dundee. He cared about his fighter too much, the way Eddie Futch cared about Joe Frazier too much in 1975 in Manila to let him come out. It is a sad way to see this great man's career end, but it seemed inevitable. I talked about the laws of physiology. So now the scene in ring center. And Larry Holmes is the heavyweight champion of the world. Was that maybe the one time you got emotionally involved? Almost you, too you much. Know why so you heard the story that night? Yeah. The night before the fight, he comes to my room. And he's staying there. He says, What do you think my chances are? I said, How about Slim and none? And Slim just left the room. He said, You don't think I can win this right, do you? I said, I'm not going to lie to you, Chamber. I don't think you should be in this fight. No, I don't think you can win it. He rips his shirt off. What do you think now? It was like a ghostly present. He looked exactly like he looked the night he fought Liston. He lost all the weight. He lost all... And I said to him, you know, you could have done that at the European Health Spa. And I didn't have no way of knowing. That's what made the fight so awful. They had him on diuretics. He could hardly lift his arms. Not that he would have done much good that night, but that's how bad it was. So we go to the fight, and it's horrible. I mean, it is horrible. And Richard Steele is refereeing it, and I lose it. You know, I like Larry very much. It didn't have to. I really felt for this man's life at that point. Really, I don't care what people say. And I've seen the film a couple of times, and they're seeing things I can't see. I never saw him throw a punch all night long, all night long. And I jump up, I think they stopped it in the ninth, somewhere around there, 
I jump up like two rounds early and I yell at Richard Steele. Richard, stop the effing fight. You're going to get this man killed. I look around and realize what I've done. It's the most unprofessional act of my entire career. I sat down and I was so, I was really embarrassed. Fight stops, okay. Sinatra's being Sinatra. He's in the showroom that night and he's saying, I just came from the room of a wonderful, of a great man. He wants you to know that he was so out here for the fight. And I was standing in the back of the room. I said, this is bullshit. And I walk out. And then I'm gambling a little bit. And I'm walking around and I just felt I felt it was so unsatisfying because the guy, if he had any brain, he pissed on his own dignity. Nobody did it for him, all right? Then two things happened, which I, it was the greatest quote I've ever heard about Ali in my life. I walk into the men's room, three o'clock in the morning. There's an old gentleman there, black fellow, handing out towels. Now I say old gentleman. I'm probably older now than he was at the time, but I was 50 then, you know, uh, and he, he was probably in his 70s, and he handed me a towel, and I said, sir, you mind if I ask you a question? He said, no, go ahead. I said, did you bet on this fight? He said, yes, I did. I said, who did you bet on? He looked at me like I, I was a Martian or something. He said, I bet on the man who gave me dignity. Man, it showed me how deep that really cut. And then, and then, I find out, I'm talking to the bookmaker at one of the hotels. He said, I never saw a damn thing like this in my life. Do you know that guy moved the line? I said, well, nobody really could. He said, the smart guy money came in, homies is going to win. Every cocktail waitress, valet parker, bartender, uh, uh, cleaner upper, change girl, all of them in this town put their $50 on Ali. And it actually moved, it's the only time in history this time, $50 bets moved the line. There were two hotels, there was one hotel where he was actually six to five favorite and the others were pick him. guy said, I never saw it. He said, it was, almost, it, was, it was almost a shame to take the money. I said, yeah, but you took it, didn't you? He said, of course I took it. But, but it was a night that I will never forget and, and that guy saying that to me, all the things I thought for all these years, that really summed it up. I bet on the man who gave me dignity. He didn't say, I knew he would win, or I hoped he would. He didn't say anything about winning or losing. He said, I bet on the man who gave me dignity. That's really the way to remember Muhammad Ali. Yeah, it was Jerry Eisenberg chatting to me in, in Henderson, Nevada, a while back. And I kind of like that note that it ends on, uh, that just that guy in the in the hotel in Las Vegas talking about Ali being the man the man who gave him dignity you know it's pretty strong stuff and that I guess that does represent what he what he brought to a lot of people yeah and uh, it kind of sums it up in a way you know this guy who'd never you know, never really met him before but was spending in whatever money he was making uh, betting on the guy he didn't even care if he won a lot he just wanted to bet on him you know mm. and uh, Jerry's I don't know how it comes across on air but when he was talking particularly when he was talking about that story actually Jerry loves, as he says himself, he loves a double story. You know, you see, yeah. he'll start one and he'll be he'll be gone off on a tangent, uh, but he'll ultimately it's it's worth sticking with them because they're they're usually gold. And some of those really quiet moments, are, are like I like the the story of the uh, being uh, training for the fight and 
happening upon a group of these elderly people and just mm. charming them beyond description. But also the story about him having a tough time with his kids. They just moved in. Uh, he was going through his divorce. He was having issues and uh, he was being, well, he, he felt certainly that he was being um, demonized by his ex-wife. And Ali kind of putting the, those kids at ease in a way that nobody else could have done. Mm. And th- that kind of gets to the heart of the impact that he had on people. This is something that you hear time and time again. But it's interesting that Jerry said that about uh, uh, impacting on young people and old people in particular. That mm. he would. There was a story that Dave Hannigan uh, told that uh, during the Ali's time in Dublin for the Al Blue Lewis fight, where it was about five in the morning, something is being driven around town. I think he was staying up around Kiltiernan somewhere, but he's been driven around the streets of Dublin. He wanted to see around Croke Park and just get a sense of the place. It was still very early though; uh, dawn was just breaking, and there was a, an old street cleaner just doing his job. And Ali went by and just said, oh, no, stop here. And he goes over and sits on a curb with this street cleaner for 15 minutes having a chat. Mm. You know, this is the kind of, this is the way that he went about his business. I think we got yeah. a sense of that seemed, during the chat with Jerry some, He seemed to have some sort of innate kindness uh, about him. But and, no, and an interest in people. Like, he sees, yeah, you definitely. know, and we all like to think they were interested in people, but to that extent of just for no particular reason, striking up a conversation with a stranger well, and think, wanting to know what they have to say. I think he was fully aware of who he was as well. Yes. He was Muhammad he Ali and... Mm. You know, being heavyweight champion at that time, it was the biggest prize in sports. And not only that, to be Muhammad Ali as well, and what that would mean to somebody. And for him to take maybe, you know, 10 minutes or five minutes out of his day, it probably meant that guy's probably still telling the story around <laughs> now, you know? <laughs> or his grandkids are still telling the story, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but I love that piece because there was so many of those um, anecdotes from Jerry, and he's this insane ability to tell stories like that I've never heard anybody like him who can put you in the place he can, I could imagine myself being in that hotel when all those old folks were gathered around <laughs> yeah, was, yeah. it was a beautiful picture that he was able to paint but also I think we can tell all, all these stories about Ali doing these kind gestures to people but also he's, he was flawed like there's no doubt about oh, of it course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's, that story about um, in Manila yeah. was you know yeah. that kind of outlined that as well like Jerry Jerry wasn't just he obviously loves and adores uh, his friend Muhammad Ali but also was able to give a story about how you know this guy also oh completely yeah and I want to talk to Reverend Jesse Jackson about this shortly because the the I was listening to Robert uh, Lipside, I think you pronounce it, the old writer who was, it did the obituary for the New York Times and he was on Slate's podcast, Hang Up and Listen, and he made an interesting point that people are talking about Ali as the great civil rights campaigner, but actually at the time when he was with the Nation of Islam, what they were looking for was the exact opposite. They were looking for segregation as opposed to looking for integration. And this is part of the reason that Ali, obviously white America at that time despised him, but a lot of black America had quite a complicated relationship with him as well. And Lipside's point is that he's even more interesting for that, that he's not a saint. And mm-hmm. sometimes he is, certainly in the last few days, there's a tendency to portray him as such. But he was flawed in plenty of ways, as every human being is, I think, which is part of the human quality as well. So mm-hmm. we'll, uh, we might pick up on that a little bit. But we heard Howard Cassell there, a uh, little bit of commentary from him on the Larry Holmes fight. So I think, I know you're particularly interested in the dynamic that those two had well it's just yeah. in most of the clips the, the clips the, the short bites that people hear and see are they invariably involve Cassell and Ali and the interesting thing I suppose is that he's been somebody who was with Ali from the very very start who backed him um, you know Cassell also was the biggest sportscaster in the world mm. by quite a distance at that point um, and was a big star in, in American football and all the rest it wasn't just boxing but he backed Ali at the toughest time when he when he uh, refused to, to take up the, the draft and uh, they 
they seemed to build up a friendship as, as time went on. But um, also for, for listeners to the podcast, they'd know that Cassell is, uh, there's a clip of Howard Cassell in our intro to US Murph <laughs> yeah. where he commentates on the, the uh, he announces the news of uh, John Lennon's death during a Monday night football game yeah. uh, in 1980. But so he's familiar to our listeners, uh, but also that um, this clip, that you're about to hear is, is lots of snippets of Cassell and Ali's time together, but also when Cassell plays tribute to Ali on his 50th birthday. Mahalik, was he doing anything differently up to the time you hit him from the first fight? Well, Howard Cosell, he, what he was doing was uh, this fella making all this noise is Howard Cosell. What, what he was doing, Howard. Good luck. I hope it's not an act. I hope you mean it. If it's an act, just look at my record and see if there have the other fights been acts. Have they been axed? Not so far. Well, what makes you think I'm acting? (laughs) And with that final stage of the act... I'm not sure that there's anybody left, really, for you to fight. You. That may come about someday. Thank you for coming on. Stay in shape. Are you taking Zara Foley too lightly? Why would you say that? Because every indication has been that you're confident that you can beat Zara. I'm confident I can whoop all of you. This ain't nothing new. My image is being confident. What you're trying to make it look like something new for? I'm always confident I can whoop all of them. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Cosell, I've been taking oxygen because I needed the oxygen. What you will see is I won't need the oxygen tonight. I'm ready. I want you so bad, I just get tired. I don't made you great in this country, and you're still popping off. Number two. The body is now aging. You ready? A shell of what it used to be. The man's beset by fear. What are you going to do to George Foreman? <laughs> he just said the man's body is not what it used to be. The man is beset by fear. Talking about me. Are you crazy? If I had a lower IQ, I could enjoy your interview. The time may have come to say goodbye to Muhammad Ali. And you're always talking about Muhammad. You're not the same man you were 10 years ago. Well, I asked your wife, and she told me you're not the same man you were two years ago. All the years, everything that's passed between us, it's so hard to believe and so memorable. And now it's time to say to you, Muhammad, God bless you, and happy birthday to you. You're 50 years old. I never thought that could happen. Not to you. But it has. And you know something? You are exactly who you said you are. You never wavered. You are free to be who you want to be. I love you. There you go. That was powerful stuff from Eric Cassell after uh, a lot of playful. I wonder in your fiftieth, on your fiftieth birthday, <sighs> will, will Owen McDevitt. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love you. Break it, break it down there. Yeah, yeah. Because Cassell, it's funny. I read a uh, biography of Cassell. I can't remember the name. I'll try and get it by the end of the podcast. But it was that that relationship between Ali and Cassell annoyed some people because Cassell himself rubbed a lot of people up the wrong mm. way and there was a sense that oh, they're just playing it up you know it's very contrived all of these interactions which kind of misses the point entirely I mean all enter- it's, enter- it's entertainment really so whatever level of um, 
you know, whether there was a bit, whether they were, it was a little bit contrived or very contrived or whatever it was, it's hilarious. And they pulled it off. They acted as though these things were all coming off the top of their head. So it was just like, that's a, that's a proper double act. Yeah. And uh, like a lot of the things that Muhammad Ali said, oh, said in the, like, have been repeated so much since <coughs> by so, other people. Yeah, Cassell, so Cassell is <coughs> getting what he wants hard, out of It's him. hard to, uh, to remember that, like, he was the original, you know. <laughs> like, even since then, he's been imitated by a lot of fighters and uh, maybe sports people, uh, you know, follow, like, talk talk trash, back it up in the ring and, you know, be loud. But no one's ever been able to do it with the same level of class or elegance or humour, you know, and, and wit and... Just very clever as well, you know. Yeah, he was the original, but also he was the original at a time when a black guy really wasn't ex- wasn't mm. supposed to say yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. He wasn't supposed yeah. to be the greatest and wasn't supposed to put that sort of message out to the mm. world. And I found it really interesting just to, to kind of um, almost illustrate that point. I was watching a clip on ESPN today. Uh, one of their broadcasters were, was referring, referring to a, an interview that a, a writer was doing just after the Olympics. Mm. I think it was in Louisville. I'm not entirely sure. But they just went into a diner, himself and Ali, just mm-hmm. one-on-one, and they were ordered a, a milkshake each. And then the waiter brought out a um, one frosty glass for the writer and then one paper cup right. for um, for Ali and referred to him as a boy. Yeah. Um, so that's the sort of society that he was dealing with yeah. at that time. And as the biggest sports person in the world, they're the sort of stances that he was making, which just shows, you know, we'll talk a little bit about his bravery as a fighter, um, but that just shows the bravery of, of the man. Mm. It was it was it was probably a paradigm shift, you know, and it was an eye opener for everybody. And it, you know, I, at the time, it probably inspired so many young black people to be proud and be mm. um, confident and and to be proud of their, who they are, you know, and, and gave them a voice almost, you know, yeah, empowered them. Mm. Yeah, well, I know one person who uh, certainly felt along those lines is our next guest. Who, in the years that Ali was risking jail time for his refusal to be drafted into the war effort in Vietnam. This man was working with Dr. Martin Luther King, among others, as part of the civil rights movement in the US. He's been one of the biggest civil rights, religious, political figures in America in the years since and is currently president of the Rainbow Push Coalition, which is a multiracial international organization fighting for social change. Reverend Jesse Jackson, you're very welcome to the show. Very well, sir. You were born, uh, yourself and Muhammad Ali, born four months apart, both from the South. Did you feel um, a bond between each other? because we had common frames of reference. been a lot of focus in the last few days on Ali as a champion and, and as a legendary force and transformer, but not a lot of focus on the conditions under which he, from which he came. Uh, he came to a, a, a segregated Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, Kentucky also banished him from boxing. Uh, uh, the... Um, uh, Louisville cared more for its horses than for its black people with the uh, Kentucky Derby. Uh, black soldiers had to sit behind Nazi prisoners of war on American military bases. Blacks had money and couldn't buy food downtown, had to pay taxes and could not vote. In so many ways, therefore, Ali was not controversial. Segregation was controversial and contradictory and immoral and hypocritical. He was simply maladjusted and used his dignity as a weapon to fight back. Well, that's interesting because the word controversial has been brought up that in the 1960s he was a controversial figure. But you explain there, you don't feel that that's the correct phrase, correct word to use. Those, those, those in charge always 
define and describe. You know, white people, you know, prevaricate. Black people lie. You know, white people embezzle. Black people steal. They're always man- man- manipulating words. And so that idea, but he was controversial. I remember the first time I was went to jail trying to use a public library. They said that we were left wing. I don't know what that meant. <laughs> left wing. I thought we were just correct. <laughs> uh, but, it, but they put these labels on you. Uh, Ali said everybody is somebody in the sense measure human rights by one yardstick. For that, he was called controversial. But the oppressive forces denied black people citizenship after 246 years. They were controversial and wrong. So, Ultimately, he proved to be right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Robert Lipsight wrote the obituary in the New York Times, and he made a point in an interview I heard since. Uh, he said, the thing that makes me angry is that the stories coming out about, about Ali as a noted civil rights activist. Lipsight says, if anything, early on, when he first rose to prominence, he was the anti-civil rights activist, that he came out of the Nation of Islam and what they wanted was segregation. What, what would you say to that? Well, actually, they felt cynical about the South ever conceding its segregated policies. And their contention was that, well, rather than fight to be a part of the bigger society, just create our own. We were being denied the right to create our own or desegregate. Dr. King's position was equal protection under the law for all citizens as the basic premise. To that extent, we, we finally won a public accommodation bill. We won it wouldn't write that. We won the fair housing act. We won the journey from the bloody bridge to the White House because we chose to embrace the larger society and not settle for anything less than that. And ironically, while the Islam nation of Islam was equivocating about the voting question as a, as an organization, um, when Ali got back in the ring, it was an African American named Leroy Johnson who had, was elected in 1962, the first black uh, elected in the South since Reconstruction, uh, negotiated a deal and got Ali back in the ring. He was a Morehouse graduate, the same as Dr. King was. He could have deal with the governor of, of that state and the mayor of that city. It was Leroy Johnson who got Dr. King, got uh, Ali back in the ring. Not Louisville, not Kentucky, not New York, not Chicago, not California. It was an African-American elected official who used his considerable skills to get him back in the ring. And once he got back in the ring, of course, he emerged again in in Muhammad Ali Part 2. You were with him. I'm right in saying you were in the dressing room with him that night he returned to the ring? Oh, yeah, it was a big deal for all of us. I was with him in the dressing room. We had prayer. I came out in the entourage that night going into the ring. It was just a wonderful moment. What was his mindset on that night? Was it was it a sense of relief? Was he was he in a joyous frame of mind that he he could come back and pursue his career again? Relieved, focused, and confident. Relieved, he had been he had been gained reentry to the ring. Uh, confident, he could win, and yet very focused. And that in, in in the dressing room, he was very focused on that fight. I suppose that's determined to win because he knew that yeah. riding on on his fist was a whole was the dreams of a whole people. Yeah, and I guess that's the sportsman in him as well, as well as being such an important figure 
he always realised that he had, had to win for his people, as you say. When he says something like, when Ali said something like, I don't have to be who you want me to be, I'm free to be who I want. How powerful a message was that for black Americans in the 1960s? It was very powerful because white America sought to define us, but always in negative terms, using negative adjectives and demeaning terms, language, and define us as inferior and themselves as superior. And we rejected that. Ali rejected that. Uh, he, he wanted a bold thing, the golden rule. That's the most revolutionary rule in the Bible, in society. The idea of doing others that you have them doing to you is really revolutionary when you offer in a society where you have superior, inferior relationships. The fact that he was such a famous sports person and taking this stance, was he capable, do you think, of reaching a different audience, maybe a new audience in some ways, compared to what the, the civil rights movement in general, was, the, the type of people that you guys were, were, were looking to help out? As a sports person, did he bring new people into the movement? There were blacks fighting the, the lynch mob of the South in the 1920s. But when Jack Johnson won his fight uh, against the white foes, it took it to another level. There were race riots. Uh, when Jesse Owens won the race uh, in, the, in, in, in uh, Berlin in 1936 on the world stage, it, it, it denied the notion that we were inferior. Uh, but, of course, uh, the, the propaganda on the American side was Hitler would not shake Jesse Owens' hand. Jess Owens was, Roosevelt wouldn't shake his hand either. We had racism on both sides of the Atlantic. When Julius beat Max Smelling, that was a big deal to us. I mean, people began to name their children after Julius. Uh, and, and he became a conquering hero. But Ali gave articulation to the problem in ways no one ever had. It was a real public defiance. So Julius would win a big fight. I said, Julius, what's your impression? He said, well, just a lucky night. Ali, I'm the greatest. I whipped him, I whipped him again. Can't no white man beat me. And that was a different dimension of bravado. How actively involved did he get uh, Reverend Jackson? For example, I, I was reading with interest your piece for CNN this week, and you, you made the point that he was with you guys uh, in Martin Luther King's hotel room before the speech in 1967, the Dr. King's anti-Vietnam speech. Well, Chauncey Eskridge was not the King's lawyer. E-S-K-R-I-D-G, Chauncey, C-H-A-U-N-C-E-Y, was not the King's lawyer, and he was Ali's lawyer. Dr. King was in the room along with uh, Andy Young and some others of us preparing for the speech that night, and Chauncey brought Ali by to offer support for Dr. King, who was giving the Vietnam and the Vietnam War speech that night, as well as Jim Brown, who they were close friends, because Dr. King supported the economic union of Jim Brown and the anti-war stand of uh, Ali. And both Dr. King and Ali were on the attack. So it became mutual support. It was mutual reinforcement because most athletes and artists surrendered their true feelings. They resented segregation, but didn't resist it in a public way. And his, his resistance in a very public and bold way gave us inspiration. Did you get the sense, Reverend Jackson, having conversations with him at that time, that his decision weighed heavily on him 
in any way? Did he ever waver from his belief in those, particularly in those three and a half years when he was out of the ring? I never saw it. It was amazing to me. He, he made the most money. He risked the most money. Uh, gave up the most of his career. And yet never expressed any regret or doubt at all. In terms of the sort of impact that, uh, that people had in the 1960s, how high would you have... Ali in that time would you would you put him up on a pedestal with the great civil rights le- civil rights leaders that you worked with where do athletes risk their careers or athletes paradoxically are quite bold inside the ring between the bases but quite conservative on the outside philosophically I remember in 1959 uh, when I was just after my senior year in high school Jackie Robinson during the offseason would go around and speak at NAACP dinners and attract sellout crowds for the banquets, raising money. That was rare. And on, and in the fall of 1959, Jack Robinson came to my hometown of Greenville, South Carolina, and uh, did the state NAACP dinner. And when they took Jackie Robinson back to the airport, Reverend Mrs. Hall, uh, there were two two waiting rooms. One was quite nasty, the color, and the one uh, the white was quite clean. She sat in the clean section. The 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 flight the uh, ticket clerk told her to get up. She wouldn't get up. And Jack Robinson stood with her and said, "I'm not leaving unless she can sit where she wants to sit." By that time, the crowd had gathered, and the plane came. And Jackie said, "If that's not resolved." I will come back. Man, the idea of Jackie Robinson coming back to town. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so much so until that January the 1st, 1960, 1,500 people marched on the airport to open it up. Because an athlete stood up and inspired us, much like David did with Goliath and much like Samson did with the Philistines. Uh, Ali was of biblical proportions. The way you describe him there, and you know, this is a sports podcast that we put out, and sometimes maybe sports people aren't given enough credit for their intellect and for what they can actually do in society. Ali himself obviously didn't have any great formal education, but did he come across to you as a guy with a, a bright mind for what was going on in society? A brilliant mind and, and thinker uh, with, with, the, with, the, with, with courage uh, and clarity of thought. You know, when your back is against the wall, you kind of got three options. One is to you you can uh, adjust to your predicament because of the risk involved. And most people, in fact, adjust and they find their place. I play ball. I sing. I teach. I do this. I do that. And they find their place, the neighborhood, the school, the church. They find their place. Others resent the situation. They don't like it, but they feel they can do nothing about it. They're just deeply resentful of the fact that they're being degraded publicly. But a few people resist publicly. And Saul went beyond, uh, he was maladjusted. He went beyond resentment to resisting the system, using uh, a high platform from which to do the resisting. And, of course, that gave inspiration to others watching 
he uh, cast a light that lit up our pathway. I think that's probably a great way to remember Muhammad Ali, Reverend Jesse Jackson. We really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks so much. Thank you. Another famous thing. This is one thing. This is one thing I love and I admire about the Irish people. I studied a little bit of history since I've been here. I found out you've been underdogs for years, hundreds of years, people dominating you and ruling you, and you can identify with this freedom struggle, you understand? But I just have mine on the other side of the water. But we all are fighting for the same cause and idea, but we have different reasons and different approaches. Ahmed Ali, thank you very much. Welcome. Mocking court gesture Claims there is no proven cure Go back to your chamber Your eyes upon the wall Cause you got no one to listen You got no one to call And you think I'm curious We've been talking quite a lot about the the greatest so far on this podcast but we haven't really talked about those claims in a boxing contest, Andy Context, I should say uh, you don't have to say it now just because of the context of this show. Do you think he was the best boxer ever? Um, I still think he's a little behind, just slightly behind Sugar Ray Robinson. Okay. To me, he's the, the all-time best. But um, Okay, so let's pick, a, let's pick uh, apart all of Ali's weaknesses as a boxer now. No. Very hard to pick one. Yeah. Um, but attributes, lightning speed, yeah. reflexes. Not the biggest puncher in the world, like not a real, doesn't have a lot of knockout, knockouts, kind of like blinded people with his speed and stung them and some like could hit hit a guy 10 times before the guy could throw one punch. Uh, he kind of fought against convention, had, in a way, people's personality reflect their boxing styles. I've said this before, hmm. and he's he was unconventional, and so was his boxing style, hands down, no, uh, doing everything that you shouldn't really do. Um, technically, he had a lot of flaws, but he made it work. He, he he made it work for himself in terms that, like he'd jab and his right hand would flail out to the left, which is something that shouldn't happen. But he made it work for himself. But what he did in the ring, you know, it kind of it's hard to speak about him as a boxer without speaking about his personality, you know, mm-hmm. and the person that he was because they go hand in hand, and you know, uh, claiming to be Sonny Liston, you know, uh, like saying Randy was going to knock him out, and <laughs> no one gave him a chance against Sonny Liston, and everyone was kind of like. Now, that now he's going to get his comeuppance against Sonny Liston. You know, everyone was kind of hoping and waiting to see him get beat, and then Sonny Liston retires on the stool. You know, we can hear Mike Tyson talking about him because he had an interesting point to make about a part of his repertoire, I guess, that we don't always hear about. This is Tyson chatting. He's being asked about the late stages of the Thriller Manila, I think it was, with Frazier. This is when Ali was dying. Mm. The last round, the 14th round, Ali is dead. He has too much pain. He'd rather die than let somebody beat him. Right. You at 20, Muhammad Ali at 20. Who wins this fight? There's no man like him. There just isn't. Um, everything that we have, he, he supersedes us, and even in our arrogance and our ego. He's fast, but he really doesn't have any great quality that you can really see besides, besides his agility. Not afraid to let punches fly. Mm. But other than that, he never threw a body punch in his life. He doesn't have a good defense. His speed was his defense. He right. moves and stuff. Say from a boxing perspective, Ali is a fucking animal. He looks more like a model than a, a fighter, but what he is, he's like a Tyrannosaurus Rex with a pretty face. He's just mean and evil in here. 
He'll take you in deep waters and drown you. He's, he's very special, the best in the world. So is that a yeah? yeah. Do you beat him? Or? No, nobody beats Ali. Nobody beats Ali. Wow. Okay. It's not right. It's not. It's not muscle memory. It's concentration. It's him doing it. Pop, 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 pop. Never stopping. And he's dead tired. And oh, I said, you. I can't beat that man. Hell, fucking no. <laughs> Hell, fucking no. No fucking there you way. Go. It's Mike Tyson in his own inimitable style, talking about Muhammad Ali. But you know, you do hear about the. The tactical, the sort of technical gifts that he had, and you hear about uh, also the bravery that he had and his ability to withstand punches. But Tyson's talking about something different there, really. It well, I think it's, a, I think part of it's bravery, but I think that clip is brilliant yeah. because he was an animal yeah. as well. You yeah. could, you, he, and he, was, he was mean, and he was mean. Mm, yeah, mean. He was like, ruthless. He gave. Uh, was it Cleveland Williams who refused to call uh, him Ernie Terrell? Was it? If you used to call him Muhammad, and he really gave that guy a beat. That was like that was a full fifteen round. Yeah, Yeah. he didn't want to knock him out. He wanted to beat him fifteen, which is horrible. And also, if you look at his face, you want to see Ernie Terrell's face after that fight because he gets Mm. interviewed in the ring, and it is it's Elephant Man style stuff. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That's yeah. That's what we talked about earlier. Earlier on the. Well, more than two sides to Muhammad Ali, the many sides of Muhammad Ali. Like, That's I, not a great one. I think I don't know what what fight you would pick out for people to see to to kind of uh, uh, basically illustrate uh, yeah. Ali's skills. But what I love is his first fight with Listen that you referred to because if you watch the first and you, you put it in the context of you know this what this guy was the the baddest, the biggest, the, the a gangster at the time, Sonny Liston, unbeatable, you know, more so than Foreman, Foreman levels. Yeah. But then he came out and it, he was so balletic for two minutes of that first round. He was. He was impossible to hit. Uh, it was absolutely beautiful. Just his movement was incredible. I've never seen uh, a heavyweight move anything like that. <coughs> excuse me, before or since. It's a, it's a, you know, a welterweight movement. Even if that, it was like like Sugar Ray Robinson. Mm-hmm. And then towards the end of the round, he got a, he got a little bit of sniff, and he started letting punches fly. And it was really aggressive, mm-hmm. really sort of tough animalistic stuff. And it just kind of sums him up perfectly. It's, um, it's he 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 was able to combine both of those elements. Yeah. And- there were so many legends around that fight, and you know, did listen was listen taking a bribe from mm. from the mafia, and you know they said that they put liniment on his gloves, and mm. that Muhammad mm. Ali couldn't see for what the third round or something on, and then he finally got his vision back, and then once listen realized he couldn't do nothing with him, he just sat on a stool like, mm. but the footage of that fight it's, just, it's electric, you know, yeah. to watch it like, and even the his reaction, you talked about it being electric that listen fight. It's his reaction. It's when he yeah, wins. Yeah. It's him going over to the, the, yeah. the journalists and giving it all, giving it all that. Mm. And there's a uh, Jerry Eisenberg had a book out years ago in the '60s, which I was just having a look at again ahead of playing that chat earlier on. And he says afterwards in the press conference, he sa- comes in and he says to journalists, "Okay, who's the greatest?" And they're all just, "Yeah, whatever." You know, uh, there was silence apparently. And then he says, "I'll try again. Who's the greatest?" <laughs> S- again, the journalists are just like, Whoa. "You know, they all hated him at that mm. stage, or many, certainly the older ones did." It was a sense that maybe the young breed of writers were were going to become more attuned to him and then the third time uh, third time he tried the answer came rumbling back from the assembled pencils you are Cassius you are alright he said I told you so so just need, <laughs> just needed that last little bit from everyone who'd written him off there there's absolutely loads and loads and loads countless amounts of articles and programs and all the rest of it on Ali over the last few days I'm sure you're on top of some of them uh, but the, the Irish Times have a supplement out today that's Monday uh, the Ringer, Bill Simmons's website, has a good a good piece. Everything you need to read and watch about Muhammad Ali. It's not a bad place to start just to get stuck in. I mean, you want to set aside a, a day or two for all yeah. of it. But there's just endless amounts of stuff. Like the, I'd, ne- I'd never seen the interview that he did with himself and Joe Frazier were on with Dick Cavett, the American talk show host. And 
and Michael Parkinson. It was really weird. Parkinson was sort of over in America as a guest co-host, along with Dick Cavett, who was one of the big American hosts at the time. And Parkinson himself looked really uncomfortable because he didn't really have control of the situation. But more to the point, it was about 40, 45 minutes. And you just see the dynamic that Ali had with every other fighter he was with. Frazier actually seemed more eloquent than I thought he was given credit for at the time. But next to Ali, slowly over the course of the 40, 45 minutes, you just see Frazier getting wound down. You see him losing the... Initially, he's letting the insults go over his head. And he actually says at one stage, I was told to keep my calm out here <laughs> by his people. By the end of it, he's trying to walk off the set. It's just, it's, a, it's not a bad play, not, not a bad one to have a look at. I mentioned the Howard Cassell book earlier on. There's loads of Ali in there. The Man, the Myth and the Transformation of American Sports is the name of that Cassell book. But listen, I'm sure you've got enough to be getting on with. Hopefully you've enjoyed this podcast. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Thanks Andy. Mark, yeah. Murph, if you're listening, you're in trouble. <laughs> Take care. Sugar man Won't you hurry Cause I'm tired of these scenes For a blue coin Won't you bring back All those colors to my dreams Don't rumble like a butterfly Don't give a damn about the money Been shot, take the title, take it all And go to jail tomorrow This chump has got everybody scared Scared of what? You told him I don't have nothing but a prayer Well, chump, all I need is a prayer Because if that prayer reached the right man Not only will George Fulman fall The mountains will fall Oh my God, he's won the title back at 32 This brash young boxer is something to see And the heavyweight championship is his destiny You saw him on television There was no one more beautiful You saw him walking down the street He was a beautiful thing to see He moved around the ring, he had style and class, he was tall and good looking. Everything you'd want from a boxer, wrestler, football player. And to be honest with you, he belonged to the arts because he had poem, poetry, he had it all. Specimen, fighting machine. You know, it was handsome. He was articulate, he was funny, charismatic, and was whooping ass, too. It's gone, is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.